0: Hello and welcome to the Open Labour Podcast. My name's James Gibson and I'm joined by Tessa Milligan who is Chair of Open Labour and who has recently joined the team of co-hosts here at the Open Labour Podcast. Hiya Tess.
1: Hello, nice to be here again.
0: Yes, two times in as many weeks. This is much more regular as we'd hoped and we're joined by a very special guest today. Paul Mason and I'm sure most if not all of our listeners will will know who you are Paul. So I don't need to do the whole Wikipedia page intro it's it's not Desert Island Dis after all. Um, I wouldn't however,
2: the Wikipedia page either.
0: <laughs> well we, we did have a little bit of a, a discussion um, Tess and I actually before before this about one piece of your introduction. Anyway, uh, just in case listeners, uh, I and mean, I'm sure there aren't any, but if there are any listeners out there who don't know who Paul is, uh, Paul is a journalist and was the former economics editor at Channel 4 News and and BBC Two's Newsnight. That's right, isn't it, Paul? That's what we were were debating, Tess and I.
2: No, yeah, I was economics editor at Newsnight and then economics editor at Channel 4. Before that, I was a journalist in the print, and I'm now a journalist freelance in, well, well, it's not even print, it's digital, uh, for the new statesman and the new uh, European.
0: Sure, and and I think it's fair to say you've written some um, very influential books over the past fifteen years, and I'm sure most of our listeners will know "Post Capitalism: A Guide to Our Future" and "Clear Bright Future: A Radical Defence of the Human Being." And it has been over fifteen years, and there are much more books than that, but they're the two okay. ones that uh, that I've read, so that's why I mentioned them. Anyway, welcome, Paul. It's lovely to have you on. It's great to be here. Yeah. How are you, Paul? Are you okay?
2: I'm I'm great, actually. I'm uh, well. I, I'm I'm currently. Um, which will be uh, an experience that many Labour aspiring politicians go through. I'm currently, wait, currently waiting to see if I can get on a long list for a constituency.
0: I, I think it's fair to say then that you, you're a pretty busy, busy person at the moment. So what we've done Paul is we've put together a, a series of questions actually to help structure the discussion and, and make sure we get the most out of your time here rather than the looser format that we usually have for the podcast, which can be a bit rambling, I suppose. <laughs> so. It, we, we, we want to talk a little bit about the state of our politics at the moment. I mean, how, how can we not on such a momentous day for listeners? We're recording on the 20th. So Liz Truss has, has just resigned as our Prime Minister about about four hours ago today. I was in the Labour Group office at Leeds City Council and we were all just engrossed around around our phones and, and couldn't quite believe what, what had happened, although we all saw it coming. None of us actually believed it was ever going to happen. So, you know, what a day. So then we'll move on to what this means for the Labour Party.
1: I thought maybe Paul could could give our listeners um, a, a bit of a soundbite in terms of what Liz Truss was trying to achieve. We all know about her book uh, that she co-authored with Kwasi Kwarteng and others, mm. "Tanya Unchained, this yeah. vision of a, a liberated post-Brexit Britain and what they could do to the economy outside of the EU. So maybe, you know, now that she's gone, a quick insight into yeah. uh, that economic plan that crashed and burned within six weeks.
2: Yes. Well, well Liz Truss identified a real problem, and that is that the UK economy is stagnant, growth is stagnant, productivity isn't growing, trade is falling, the value of our currency has fallen by a third since Brexit, and um, investment, which went up during uh, the Osborne Cameron years, flatlined as soon as Brexit happened. So she's absolutely right that something radical needed to happen. But the textbook she was working from is basically a discredited economic textbook, which says that, and remember, there's two parts to Trussonomics. One is that to stimulate growth, you have to enrich the rich, and you do so by cutting taxes. That was part one. Part two, and it's really clear from what she said, is that redistribution is immoral that redistribution gets in the way of unleashing the animal spirits of your, your white van man and your plumber who got their, had their tax bill, bills cut and can now go out and, and make money. What they don't want to see is some of their taxes going on increased welfare and the rest of it. So that was the two parts of trustism. And um, the first part of it could only work in the modern kind of free market structure that we've imposed on our economy, if you could show that the growth you promised from 45 billion pounds worth of tax cuts would actually happen. But what they did is they they chose to abolish and sideline all the institutions that could have shown it. And the reason they had to do that is that no mainstream economic model would have proved it, that it have most likely proved the opposite, that the tax cuts would have stimulated inflation, but not led through to growth. So economics was telling her, you're doing the wrong thing. She didn't want to hear it. She did it. And so the markets told her even more emphatically because they just, you know, people know the story by now. The bond market started dumping UK bonds. So the interest rate the government has to pay, the effective interest rate uh, started to rise. That knocked on straight into the mortgage market. Trust meanwhile was in denial and remained in denial right the way through Labour Party conference, until on the morning we all I was getting on my train from uh, Liverpool back to London, where I live. Bang, uh, the Bank of England has to step in. Bank of England steps in, saves the pension funds, which were at risk of collapse, uh, and then says to Trust, look, it's not our job to stabilise the economy, it's yours, get on with it. And so they gave her a deadline, deadline came, Kuateng had to go, and then... You know, with him went the entire pro- pro- project of tax cuts. So we've had a complete iteration of free market lunacy, courtesy of Liz Trust, ending with not the status quo, but worse, because about 10 billion of the fiscal black hole we now face comes from the markets, not regarding the British political system as stable. <laughs> and my goodness, after today, they'll they'll regard it as even more unstable.
0: And, uh i mean is there is there any anything we can say for liz Truss's approach is there any precedence for it i mean singapore for example or is it just complete lunacy i mean is that what we're dealing with here
2: so it's not lunacy it's dogma or ideology and the way it could have worked and one one place it might have worked was america because because the american currency and the american economy are strong but our currency is weak and and our economy has been damaged by brexit america has a continental size economy um, we cut ourselves off from a continental-sized economy. But the other thing is, what in his favour, Boris Johnson understood that if you're going to do free market economics, you have to do them in a way that expands the economy. And rather than trickling down to the poor, is Im- the, the effects are immediately felt by people. and the, the only way you can do that is by micromanaging the economy. Now, we in Labour, after our conference, we have a different approach. What we say is you want industrial strategy. You want an industrial strategic plan owned by government, local government, regional government, understood by the Bank of England, everybody on the same page, so that you know if you're in Sheffield, for example, where I hope to be in the next couple of weeks uh, campaigning, you know that the aim of economic decision making there is to boost uh, a local cluster of industries around nuclear, to uh, boost zero net carbon, you, and you know that you, that the more you do this, the better things will feel. That's Truss's entire philosophy, embodied in that famous Britannia Unchained book, was to do the opposite: to not intervene in the in, in the kind of in the, in that sector of the economy where you shape the way money flows, and to just really let market forces rip. It is neo Thatcherism and. Even the markets didn't like it because anybody who's had any contact with people who buy and sell government bonds will say what they're interested in is a long term economic growth model that makes sure when they lend you a billion, they get that billion back at the end of 10 years and a steady stream of interest to pay. Because what these bonds do is they fund pension fund payouts. So what they want is 1%, 2%, absolutely guaranteed over over a decade or even 30 years. What they don't want is meddling with theories that are busted. Um, so, no, ultimately, it was, it was. I've, I've written today, she was elected on a lie. The lie hit reality, it met reality. Reality proved it was wrong. And we've wasted three months.
0: Interesting that you mention neo-thatarism because trust very much marketed itself as thatcher didn't she i mean even w- when she was foreign secretary with the photos with the tanks and the flag and the rest of it mm. and i think you know i'm I'm a counselor paul in um in leeds and talking to some of the tory councillors, they, they they saw liz trust as the second coming of margaret thatcher and, mm. and were excited about the approach that she was going to take what is the difference between what margaret thatcher did and her economic strategy from in 1979 and and liz trust's approach how come liz has has, has crashed so so profoundly in Margaret Thatcher's I mean obviously we we would say in Labour Party was uh, Margaret Thatcher's approach was awful and led to I'm from a mining town Paul so led to all sorts of hardships and inequality but from the economic side people can make the argument that it was successful what's the difference?
2: Well Margaret Thatcher had the whole British ruling class behind her desperate for a revolution uh, against trade unionism and that's what to me that's what Thatcherism was I lived through it um I'm from a mining and cotton town, Lee. And yes. even there, which was quite a conservative working class, you know, not massively radical, like the Yorkshire Coalfield, we had, um, you know, my dad not only occupied his workplace, he occupied the offices of the TNG in Salford because mm. they refused to support the occupation. I mean, and this was not a radical person, not a person who read, you know, Marxist newspapers. This was somebody very representative of his generation who had understood the power of solidarity. Now, I lived through those early battles of Thatcherism against the, against the steelworkers. I was on the first mass picket of um, the Thatcher era to a place called Hadfields in Sheffield. On Valentine's Day, 1980, um, a massive battle with the police. And they carried on. There was, a, there was a, the start of a minor strike. Then it petered out. Then there was the minor strike. Then there was the print dispute at Wapping. And what Thatcher had to do is defeat a real sociological fact of mass socialist and trade union consciousness. And so she had people with her. Now, because she smashed us, what happened? Our bargaining power, the bargaining power of labour against capital, evaporated. And so wages are stagnating. Wages are falling um, in real terms. And more than that, people are atomized. Young people I like meet, they don't even know what a trade union is. know Mm -hmm. they wouldn't know that they had the right to collectively bargain with their employer this they're they're sneaking around the workplace saying give me a a pay rise give me a bonus um so the bourgeoisie as we call them you know the ruling class don't need a thatcher what they need is a long-term growth model and who are the ruling class in thatcher's era you had big british industrialists uh in whose interest it was to smash unions now you've got global monopolies And their interest, you know, you think about what does Amazon need? Amazon needs um, for me and you and everybody, all the rest of us, you know, who've got these Amazon Prime accounts to have enough money in our bank accounts to to carry on paying. So the interest of of capital has changed. What what capitalism wants is a long term investment model that says, right, okay, Britain, are you going to be like Finland, which is its government wants wants to, to create a zero carbon welfare state? by 2035? That's government policy. Or are you going to be like Singapore, where there's very high-paid um, industry, but essentially it, it's 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 let market forces rip? Are you going to be like California? Are you going to be like France or Germany with its industrial collaboration model? Because we, global capital, we, we can go anywhere. You know, We can move our factories and our investments and our service models anywhere, as long as we know what the model is. The Tories' great disaster was that they couldn't come up with a post-Brexit economic model. Uh, if you think about it, they've tried four. So Theresa May was austerity plus soft Brexit. Johnson was hard Brexit plus a big state, you know, borrowing and spending, that's what Johnson did. Um, Liz Truss was hard Brexit plus a small state. She wanted to cut the size of the state. And then from last Friday, um, under Jeremy Hunt, the policy has been hard Brexit plus austerity. So we've we've gone the full circle. We've tried everything except, except the obvious thing, which is soft Brexit, a big state, fiscal expansion and a long term plan. And it just so happens that that is Labour's proposal. You know, the, one of the tragedies of the Tories as in this coming leadership election is that I predict no wing of the Tory party will emerge capable of saying, look, let's do Brexit soft let's restore state investment and let's do long term industrial planning that's all they need to say but they, they they've eviscerated their their politics of those kind of ideas
1: so interesting to listen to this um particularly when you look at how uh, you know the tory party as as the so-called party of business has really damaged its own relationship with many of its own sort of core supporters um like when liz truss quasi quoting announced this mini budget um and i watched an interview of sky news with the head of the cbi who was asked what do you make of the this plan for growth and he said you know if you asked me to come up with a plan for growth none of this stuff would be in my top 30 ideas you know yeah. in terms of big business one of their biggest issues is recruitment and and frankly that means a, a conversation about immigration, immigration. Um, and its relationship with certain industries and that's a conversation that the Tory party can't have with itself because it's got these warring factions the the um the rhetoric, rhetoric it's created for itself around that issue it is uh is well, we penting.
0: saw what that we saw what uh, the uh, conversation looked like yesterday didn't we two hour shouting match apparently
1: yeah yeah between <laughs> Suella and 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 Liz um mm. so let's it's a paradox now for them on a lot of these key issues.
2: And let's ask ourselves, you know, what leader, what business leader, what political leader has a 90-minute argument with anybody? You know, what the, the principles of leadership are, you know, you create teams, you create um, consensus, but where you can't, where there's disagreement, the point about management and leadership is you, is that you take, the leader takes the decision, communicates it to the to the subordinate people in the hierarchy and explains how they want it done. And then you move on. I can't believe that they sat there for, for 90 minutes arguing the toss. And that tells me that what, what we've also got, and we mustn't underestimate this, is sort of 12 years in power, but nearly 40 years of ruling the roost with their ideologies has created a set of people who don't know when they're wrong. and. You you know you, James, I'm sure you test, meet people, I meet them in public life who they've they've only ever gone to, say a Russell group University, public school, Russell Group University, where they've learned the market is a perfect machine for calculating great human outcomes. and then they go into a think tank and then before they know it, they're thirty five and they're a Tory MP or they're going to be. or even worse, they're a star on these alternative news programs, GB news. And no, it's never occurred to them that they could be wrong. It's never occurred to them that you know John Maynard Keynes or Hyman Minsky or or or, or uh, Thomas Piketty, you know, could have ideas that might that might apply to the situation. They just stick, st- sit there spitting out stale, archaic, free market ideology, and so when it when things go wrong, it can feel to them literally like that that kind of you know the whole world's full of them. Falling apart. That no one's ever challenged them. Um, they're not used to abrasiveness and and having to. I mean, we, the Labour movement, we live in a an atmosphere of struggle. We have to struggle even to get on the new, on the telly. You know, I mean, you know, we, 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 life for a Labour movement activist feels like a long uphill walk, doesn't it? But for a Tory activist, it can feel like a long downhill stroll until splat, they hit the wall, and that's what they just did.
1: Yeah, and the and the the advantage for the Labour Party, I think, is that it has a much healthier conversation amongst itself about policies than the Tory Party do. Um, it's 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 less top down, and it means that our our ideas get a proper debate before we put them to the country. You know, an example would be the national minimum wage. It's an idea that came out of of the trade unions was was a fight within the trade unions some of the left-wing trade unions didn't like it when it first came out and it eventually made its way to the Labour Party and Labour spent a long time developing its arguments for something like that which of course was hugely opposed by the Tory party they said they said it would crash the economy um but but it it withstood those those tests because it it had already gone through a, a fairly rigorous process whereas you know what you're describing what we've had with Liz Truss is a, f- a few ideas plucked out of of think tanks that have tried to shape her and other Tory MPs for for a decade and like you say they've come to contact with reality and and splat um now that we think to you know the future and and what is next i mean who knows uh, where things will be by the time listeners are listening to this podcast but i'd be keen to hear what your predictions are for the next leader of the Conservative Party uh, uh, this time, you know, next week, who it might be?
2: Well, um, if they've got any sense, they would choose Penny Morden because yeah, she's, com- she's a communicator. She handled Keir Starmer well at the, uh, mm-hmm. in the very difficult position she was in. She also adeptly dumped trust. I mean, that you know, she's not hiding under a desk, is a great line about someone you're about to stab in the back. And uh, I think that was pretty obvious. Um, it, I do a bit of uh, communications training with politicians. And the first um, the first thing I always do is show them a a, a showreel of different politicians um, speaking, just being normal. And I always ask them to rate them warm or cold, warm or cold. Just really, really, really simple thing. And at the end, I always say to them, right, what about you, warm or cold? There's absolutely no doubt that people with warmth and communicative kind of empathy are accepted by the public more it, it, it's just a fact of life and if you are put, some of us are born cold but you've got to learn to be a warm person and fortunately for penny morden she she's got that communicative warmth which is um gold dust in politics so they'd be mad not to choose her she also um had a, an element of Political intelligence during her campaign, in the sense that she, I think she's just as much of a free marketeer as Truss. Yeah, she hid it. Um, yeah. She's yeah. talked a lot about redistribution. She talked a lot about, uh, or the Tory version of, of, of redistribution. You know, looking after the poorest, etc. She also um, came up with a few non-mad ideas about social, um, you know, social justice, social integration. But I have to say, it's you know this is a party of um currently quite irrational people and i think it i think my fear is that they go for one of the absolute mad libertarians uh braverman or um badenoch and i mean they could the sunak is clearly going to go for it um but he didn't win it last time but now effectively, I mean, it's, his program has been mandated to that party mm. by the market. So it might be obvious, but is he a, he's not a, he's not a warm person, he's not a communicator. He, he comes across as elitist. And especially now um, when, you know, members of the public voters are seeing their mortgage interest payments double and they're about to go through the worst winter ever. Uh, the idea that, you know, a guy who effectively has lived most of his adult life in California and at one stage held a green card. You know, it, it, it's we're, In a way, Johnson was a great gift to the Tory because he had a popular touch. He was warm and, and he looked like an iconoclast. They're stuck. I think their bigger problem, wherever, whoever they choose for leader, their bigger problem is that they're out of ideas and they're out of people who can, unless I'm mistaken, they're out of people who can come up with new ideas. Um, so I think the best we can expect from the Tories is get through the winter, Get through the very difficult situations that could arise out of the instability coming from Ukraine and the Ukraine war, and then, with good grace, call an election in the spring. Um, I think that's where we probably need to be.
0: Yeah, I, I, I agree. I was. I, I'm fearful of Morden for the Labour Party. I, I, I agree that she's a good communicator. I think she did handle here. Pretty well. I was surprised actually um, at how she how she performed. Was it two days ago now at the dispatch yeah. box? I wa- I didn't think she performed fantastically in the leadership election, and I, I saw that as a bit of a pass for the Labour Party because I didn't think <sighs> if she won, then we would be in yeah. trouble. So, but yeah, I, th- I think you're right. But hopefully, no Tories are listening to this and um, won't get the idea to pick her in the in the perhaps go for Sunak instead. Okay, so one of the questions I'm re- I really keen to ask you, Paul, was, and you've already touched on it really, we've seen from 2010 and, and throughout austerity, we heard the conservatives and right-wing commentators waxing lyrical about our AAA rating and things like getting the deficit down and reducing debt and this, that sort of conservative obsession seemed to go out the window after the pandemic, both with, with Boris and, and Liz Trust as well. Didn't seem overly concerned with, with, with those things uh, amongst others. But since last Friday, we, we've seen a, a complete reversal back to this credit card analogy and an austerity, potentially austerity 2.0, which we all know will will fail and can't happen. But I wondered, what's your opinion on how this will affect our politics? And when I mean our politics, I mean the country's politics. And and what does that mean for the Labour Party?
2: Okay, I mean, this is a live discussion. They are going to come forward with their austerity to zero. They're talking it up. They're saying there's a 40 billion or 38 billion black hole in the public finances, which means that after they've cancelled all their tax giveaways, they're still, let's say, 40 billion short for what? let's let's that's the question we should always ask 40 billion short of what and and the answer is 40 billion short of of what they need to do to get the deficit down to zero in 3 years time which is their target and all the economists i've been talking to today mainly left economists but not only are saying why did they impose that rule what what on what basis do you impose a a 3 year deficit reduction rule um after you've lived through the worst pandemic and then you're living through the worst inflation caused by external factors that you've got no um, control over when you have to pay people's bills, why would you have a rule saying, ah, in three years time, we're gonna get the the public borrowing down to zero. Why would you do it? There's no reason for it. And I think that's the argument I want us to win on the doorstep, that the fiscal rules that we've had are arbitrarily imposed. Um, There's no need for them except for one objective to keep the markets happy that you have fiscal discipline that is the discipline of tax and spend i think the what made the markets go crazy was not even the idea of giving a borrowing 45 billion and giving it away to rich people it was the idea that the tories had no rules they weren't working to rules in fact their monetary rule which is you know the bank of england raising um Interest rates to to stop inflation was working against their fiscal rule, which was saying give money away uh, to boost growth. And so the markets saw there was inconsistency and confusion and and lack of credibility. Now I think Labour has to work hard and is working hard to say we will have rules. We will, you know, certainly not go splurging money um, in the first four weeks of, of coming to power. I don't think we should. But The rules don't have to be the same ones that Sunak imposed. And there's a reason for that. There's a more imperative reason politically. Sunak imposed rules that said, on principle, the next generation does not pay for climate change mitigation through high debt. We pay for it through tax. That was Sunak's rule. Um, It's stupid. It's absolutely counterproductive because no amount of taxation in the world could could, could fund the level of borrowing Sorry, the the, the level of of spending we need to to do the Green New Deal or whatever we wanna call it, green industrial revolution. So he tied his own hands or he tied our hands as a society in terms of zero net carbon. And then um, the the fiscal rules are just too tight. I want Rachel Reeves to think about restating our fiscal rules over a kind of five-year period. Let's aim for a five-year deficit reduction, five years to get the debt falling, forget the idea of, of limits on on how much we can invest um, and by the way as well the Tories have an absolute benefit cap so that you know there's an absolute yes. amount of money when you when you hit it you can't give give I anyone work as a money.
0: social worker poll so I'm very very aware of that yeah
2: yeah and, and, I, and I pity you for that because that is it's, it's just destroying the quality of people's lives who are Certainly. who are among the poorest it's also producing in work poverty so I think we can have labor must have a clear fiscal rule it's parliamentary party must go into the next election and the next government determined to stick to it because we've seen what can happen but there's no need for it to be the, the soon act one and then what i want us to try and do and if if open Labour's listeners can help us is to start having a mature debate within labor party about what our fiscal rules should be wonderful
0: well, Tess, we did say that we're going to stick to our half an hour rule, and, and we're edging very close to half an hour now, Paul. So I think we're going to call that a day. We could go on, of course, for for much longer because this is so interesting. But a nice short, succinct podcast goes down better with people. So thank you so much for coming on today. I hope our listeners found that as interesting as Tess and, and I did. Very, but can very I just say?
2: Leave inside all that. You've got to leave. You've got to leave listeners on and up. You know, we have we've seen off yet another tory and one of the worst the tory party is in disarray people who voted for them in 2019 in in full honesty that they thought they were going to do good things for working class communities are fuming disillusioned um and but i think we've got a job to do open labor has a job to do which is to we have to seal the deal for a positive you know a positive alternative it's not just we hate these guys they've betrayed us it's got to be and labor's gonna sort it absolutely um, so and we're not
0: quite the, there yet from the my no,
2: we're, we're nowhere near there we have no. to be very very careful the, this mood is very volatile And when we go into the winter if people's lights start going off um don't think those 50 percent who are saying you know labor's brilliant would stick around if some kind of populist right-wing party popped up again uh, offering very stupid easy solutions um i, I think we'd Politics is going to be a rocky road for the next uh, eighteen months, which is yeah. how long I think it's going to be. We could be eighteen months till an election. So, get yeah. ready.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, and and there's been some suggestion that that Boris might come back, you know, this week. <laughs> but I think you know, I think they,
0: I think they have him down at eighteen percent on the on the um, odds tracker I was looking at earlier. Morden's in front, but and Stunac uh, above it. Morden.
1: I think the thing is, whoever whoever they put up now i mean this is an existential issue for them i got a message from my dad earlier a shout out to duncan and i just <laughs> thought um i'd read it out because it, it sort of s- sums up where the tory party are now they're on their fifth prime minister in six years probably the seventh chancellor this is not normal it's a symptom of a much bigger underlying issue it's the fever that tells you your major organs are shutting down <laughs> quite, right. quite right yeah
0: well said
2: duncan <laughs> is that the Duncan Milligan?
1: Who is the Duncan Milligan? Have you met him?
2: I think so. I don't, might have. You might have. Yeah.
1: Maybe, maybe when you were, uh, maybe when you were editor of Newsnight or something like that. We can cut this out of the podcast, James. Yeah,
2: no, possibly <laughs> why not? Well, it's interesting. What, what did he used to do?
1: <laughs> he was a he was a he was a union press officer.
2: For yeah, White. that's right. FBU. Yes. Oh no! I used to work with him. we very closely during the FBU dispute in the no y, way. Y, y campaign. Yeah, yeah. We'll say That's hi to you. Oh, I will do. <laughs> right, listen. I've got to go yeah. because I'm going to go make a stir fry.
0: Yeah, okay. very, I was going to say what you're cooking. Yeah, wonderful. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Um. Yeah. Thanks for thanks again for coming on, Paul. See you next right. time. Thank you.